<laughs> I was afraid that if I was, I said I was recording, nobody's going to want to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're recording because we have two folks who are two different places who are both wanting to be part, uh, at least get to listen to the discussion, who had read the book, so I told them we would try. So I don't know. We'll see how well the audio, audio quality is. Hopefully it's good enough that they can hear. Y'all going to have to speak up when you make comments because you want to make sure you get on the audio. Yeah. Um, but let's go and pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we're thankful for this night. Uh, Lord, thank you for what you've given us in your word and things that strengthen us and things that sharpen us and things that challenge us. And thank you for the gift of uh, church family and other Christians that we can uh, work through this stuff with. And I pray, God, that, that we would be sharpened tonight. I pray that you would be honored tonight. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Come on in. Hang this one. Come on. Plenty of room. Come on. Yo, are you coming past me? Yeah, I'm coming past you. Sorry. Sorry, we're disrupting. I like your cute little sweatshirt. Thank you. That's cute. Trying to get into the spirit. So I just mentioned we actually, that we're recording this one, and we have lots of people who bought the book this time. So maybe we should just start that with that. Why do you think, why would so many people be interested in this? We had lots of people buy the book. Lots of people want to come to the discussion. What is it about this topic that grabs interest, you think? It's just a hard topic to wrap your brain around. It's yeah. difficult. I mean, you know, because just, just the whole thing of some people not being, having the option to be saved um, as far as the elect. I guess if I'm understanding it, and I don't know that I understand it, so... Um, yeah. yeah, it's a big topic. It for is. Sure. And yeah. It was a difficult read. Mm. Uh, he would every time she think, "Oh yeah, yeah." <laughs> we were talking about it. Remember, Teresa told yeah. us it was easy to read. Me and you would go, "Oh, it's so <laughs> <laughs> it, It's like, okay. And then he said, "But then if you think this, then what about that?" You got to go. He raises lots of questions. Uh -huh. He does. I'm not where I need you. Come on, I'm going to put you right up here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Brother Jared, you can just. I, I thought you had uh, decided and chosen this just for me, and then when I asked you, I, you really just kind of threw water on me and said, No. <laughs> <laughs> Jared and I had met for lunch, gosh, I guess a couple months ago, and we, this was sort of about, not this book, but just a whole concept of. Uh, uh, reformed and Calvinism and just kind of a lot of things so when I saw this was the next one I thought he, he, he's gonna have he's gonna make sure I understand <laughs> <laughs> so we actually I chose this one because in the question answer series we were doing actually the last two times our question answer series we've had a question on this or related to it. we've had a question about one this last time it was what is election what does that mean and then two times ago it was a question about uh, who did for whom did Jesus die? Basically, so both related to this topic. So I thought, why don't we just dive into it for those who are really interested? So that's why we're doing. It. Do you remember the first time you ever uh, were presented or heard about the doctrine of predestination or election, yes. and how it struck you initially? What initial thoughts were? How did how does it how did it strike you initially? I was in Bible college at Liberty, and I never. I mean, growing up in church, and you know, they never really thought about it, and had um, a professor who kind of gave both sides. And I remember coming back 
um, to, to your department and had he, you had friends there and another guy who was going into <coughs> ministry and I said, man, I just don't know about this. And he, I was like, it just doesn't seem fair. And Rick said, well, Courtney, what would be fair? And then that's kind of where I first started thinking, okay, maybe I'm not seeing this in the way I need to be looking at things. So that's the first, that's the first time I remember it. Yeah. Anybody else remember? Yeah, I remember the first time I even thought about the term was at work at the railroad in a break room. And a bunch of us guys sitting around a table and another group of guys and uh, one of my friends said, yeah, those guys over there, they believed in that only certain number of people, just certain people are going to be saved. It's not whosoever will. So stay away from those guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because it gives you a, you, you, like even what Ms. Wanda said a second ago, it makes you think about how people, the little misunderstandings people might have that affect even how you talk about the, the doctrine. And it can be a really controversial issue, right? So if it's so controversial, potentially, why even, why get into it? Why have a discussion on it? On it That's my fault. So let's just don't even bother about it. It's God's fault. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way it's going to be. Well, that's, I do that. Just do what he tells me to do. And he tells me to share, so let's do it share. <laughs> That's why we're here. We knew you could help us understand. Yeah. Well, no, but it, why? it is controversial. Right, it is. I mean, if 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 Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis, I don't remember the others, if they don't believe in it, <laughs> right? And and Wesley and Whitfield, who are both traveling okay. in America at the same time as friends, have different positions on it. Yeah. I mean, then it's definitely controversial, right? For well, one of the things that I found is that. I had a, such a very, very narrow understanding of predestination, and, and I found out through reading this, and I mean, it just shot everything, out, which was very little that I knew about it, kind of totally out of the water, because, um, you know, when you read this whole book, and I think it's the kind of book you need to read at least twice, and not three times, <laughs> and, yeah. and it's, you know, it, you know it, it was intriguing to me, and this, uh, R.C. Sproul is, 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 is quite a, he, he's brilliant, I mean, he's just uh, amazing, and just as soon as I thought I had a handle on it, then he jerks it. <laughs> I, think, I think he's about to, you know, agree with this theory, and then he says, well, it's not, but it's not biblical, so, <laughs> so um, but yeah, it, it's just, uh, um, it really kind of, puts the whole thing in perspective as far as uh, the very narrow thing that I, I viewed it as. It's okay. just that God chose us a number, a certain number of people and that's it. So. But the Bible, so to answer your question, the Bible talks about it. It's all throughout scripture. So we have to have some, we have to, it's got to be settled with us, some kind of view. Yeah. And, and I think that's it. I, as, a, as a Christian, I want to be able to, and if somebody asked me about it, I, I need to be able to give a good answer. And I don't yeah. I don't have that right, right. now. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, two things. One is we don't want to get into issues that are controversial just for the sake of controversy. No, right? no, the Bible no. warns about like wrangling over words and silly sort of arguments. But on the other hand, if there's something that's addressed in the Bible that's controversial... 
we actually have an obligation to get into the controversy. Absolutely. And, and this doctrine isn't, it's not like just something that's tucked away in one verse in Amos somewhere. It's everywhere. I mean, from early in Genesis, we have God making points about choosing Abraham to the revelation. We have it come up. These words come up. So God didn't hide it. God put it out there for us to know. So there's enough information for us to know. So um, there's some controversies we should avoid. This isn't one of them. So, I mean, you, in a lot of circles, the doctrine of the Trinity is controversial. But the fact that it's controversial doesn't mean that we don't need to push into it. So that, that would be, you know, my response to that. So that's why we're pushing into it. So, uh, man, I thought about going through this a lot of different ways and just kind of walking through. He, he lays it out in the tulip form eventually in the book, and we could just go through that. There's a couple passages I thought about just spending our time in, but I, we'll do it like we normally do, and then we'll stop on one of those if we need to, okay? So we'll just go chapter by chapter and um, make points and ask questions as we go. And if we need to pause and, and turn to some passages of Scripture, we'll do that too. Let me ask one more question. Is this a subject that Christians can disagree on? Yes. Yes. 100%. But in saying that, that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Because how you understand these things has an impact on how you understand. I mean, eternal security is tied to how you understand this. Your understanding of God's grace is tied to how you understand this. It even has an impact on um, how you handle sharing the gospel. Because if, man, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if I believe that ultimately salvation is the work of God, God's called me to share the gospel through the gospel he saves as he sees fit, then it frees me from feeling like I have to really manipulate people into believing. But whereas if I believe that ultimately it's, it's the human will, and if I can get this person in their will to make the decision, well then it lends more toward, in my feelings, lends more toward a kind of manipulative evangelistic approach where now we're playing 17 verses of just as I am, you know, sort of, sort of evangelism. And so I think, it, I think it has an impact practically on what we do. So... Okay, so let's jump into chapter 1, and I think I covered in some of that some of the stuff in chapter 1, because <laughs> it's just getting into the struggle and people believe different things. He does put this quote, he, the note that he wrote to himself on his desk on page 4, and it's a, kind of a good preamble to this study. You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. That's a good thing, right? Is I don't get to. It's not what I want the Bible to say. It's what the Bible says that I'm obligated to believe, uh, regardless of how controversial. So that's really chapter one. Um, so chapter two is where we start getting into predestination and sovereignty. What what does predestination mean? What does that word mean? It's a Bible word. Shows up in Scripture. What does it mean? Something's determined before. Okay predestiny, destiny in some ways determined beforehand. So how does God's sovereignty and predestination connect? What's the relationship? When we talk about God's sovereignty, what are we talking about? He's in control. Okay. He rules over his creation. Total control. Absolute rule over his creation. So predestination is now getting into how God's sovereignty relates to the area of salvation. Okay, so one of the things you'll note, even Christians who would disagree with doc the doctrine of election, as we're talking about here, unconditional election, every Christian you run into just about is going to say they agree that God is sovereign, right? They agree God is ultimately in control, good or bad, God's hands are over that. 
What strikes me, though, is so many people who are believe and would argue that God is sovereign all of a sudden want to back out of sovereignty when it comes to the most important issue of all. What's the most important issue of life? Salvation. Salvation. So if God is sovereign over everything but the most important thing, then he's not sovereign. Right? There's that, I think Sproul gave the quote here that he also used in um, uh, The Holiness of God, the quote where he says, um, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe that is outside of God's control, God is not sovereign. So his sovereignty means there's not a single maverick molecule. Everything is under his governance. Okay, That includes salvation. So predestination is connecting the issue of salvation to the sovereignty of God. All right, so that's, that's kind of how those two things relate. Now, he gets into, he raises some questions in chapter 2 that he doesn't really fully answer and aren't really necessary with, with election. But one of the questions he raises about sovereignty is, how does God's sovereignty and the issue of evil fit together? Because if God's sovereign, why do bad things happen? Why do evil things happen? Why is there sin? If God's in control, why does that sort of thing happen? And that, that's one of the biggest apologetics questions you can deal with, right? Well, he even said, what, uh, if he knew evil was going to be brought into the world, why did he create it? If he knew ahead of time, right? That, I mean, all them if questions that he went through right there, right? At one People time, you know, he just going through, well, if this, why did he do this? If he knew this was going to happen, right? And why didn't he do this knowing that was going to happen, right? Yeah, so I, lots of questions to work through. I think if we were just to kind of settle down to the bottom issue on that question, we would say there are a couple things as believers that we have to affirm and deny when it comes to the issue of God's sovereignty and evil. We have to affirm that God is in absolute control even over hard, bad things. He, he is. The Bible doesn't leave any way out of that. At the same time, we have to affirm that God, or maybe I should say it the other way, we have to deny that that means that God is the primary responsible party for sin in the world. In other words, God doesn't create it. God doesn't coerce anybody to do it. So God is sovereign over everything, including the bad things that happens, but he is not the direct cause of evil. The Bible says both of those things. Right. Now, how all of that weaves together is where you get in. He talks in a couple of chapters about mystery, where we, don't, we can't quite see how it all works together, but the Bible's clear about both of those things. So I, the, I guess what I'm getting at is the answer is not to say, I don't understand how it fits together, so that must mean God's not so sovereign. That's the only way I know how to get rid of this issue of evil, because the Bible won't let me do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, nor can I say, well, God's sovereign. That must mean that God's also responsible for evil. Well, the Bible won't let me say that either. Mm -hmm. So I, there's a tension that, that the Bible forces us to hold there, where God is in control. Evil's here because it's God's plan that it be here. There's something he's accomplishing on the other side to show who he is and to show his glory on the other side of this. So he's got a plan in it, but he's not the direct actor or cause. He's not working in anybody's heart to make them do evil. So, so that's basically the question he's getting into there. That deserves a whole book. And there are whole, <laughs> really, there are whole yeah. books that are written yeah. about yeah. that apologetic issue of, of evil in the world and how you reconcile it with God's sovereignty. But he raises it and then asks about 600 questions and then just sort of I'm moves sorry. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we just comes in our, our free will to sin? I mean, is that... It, it absolutely I mean, does. That's, it, it, yeah. It's not God. It's our 
sinful nature yeah. or free will to, to do that. And that brings up what we'll come into in a few chapters. What do we mean by free will? How, what exactly does that look like? But it absolutely does. That we have a responsibility in our free will that we choose sin and there's respons- that's where evil ultimately comes from. But even that doesn't back away from that God is still sovereign over that. It's here because God ordains it to be here. God, I, whatever word you choose, permits it to be here. God allows it to be here. But it's not here accidentally or unbeknownst to God. It's here as part of his sovereign rule as king. Even though there's personal responsibility, we're the primary cause for the evil. He's still, he's still sovereign. So, um, yes, and the free will question is right. That it's ultimately our responsibility. We sin because we choose to sin. But that backs up a question. Well, what do we mean by free will? That we're, we'll get into in about two chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, any other questions on that? He really does ask. A, to me, uh, that was one of those issues that I wish he either would have spent more time on or less time on because he tends, tends, tends just to raise a lot of questions about it mm-hmm. without, and then answer, goes on. without answering <laughs> the questions. Yeah. yeah. It never really gave us an answer. <laughs> yeah. that, that part is a little bit unsatisfactory to me. But anything else in chapter 2? He raises on page 20 a question about... Look at page 20. He's talking about God's sovereignty and fallen humanity. He says, when we consider the relationship of a sovereign God to a fallen world, we're faced with basically four options. Here are the four options. God could... God could decide to provide no opportunity for anyone to be saved. Would God be just to do that? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Option two, God could provide an opportunity for all to be saved. Would God be just to do that? Yes. 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 Option three, God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of all people. Would God be just to do that? Right, merciful. Mm-hmm. He would not be unjust to do that. Yes. Option four, could God intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people? He's not so he's saying these are the four options. You've got a sovereign God and a sinful humanity. So there's four directions God could have gone here, right? He could have not provided salvation for anyone. He could have offered salvation to everyone. He could have ensured salvation for everyone. Or he could have ensured salvation for some. What are the, of those four options, what are the two that people gravitate to? Everybody's going, everybody's going to be saved. Okay, that's universalism. Yeah. Universalism says, well, God, everybody's eventually going to be saved in the end. The, the Arminian position is going to say, well, option two, God just provided the opportunity for salvation to everyone. And then the, Calvin, the Calvinistic position is option three, that God intervened directly and ensured the salvation yeah. of some. That's four. That's four. Four, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah not of all, of some. Yeah. So, and so what we're trying to do is work through those options. What, which one of those positions does the Bible point us toward? Do those four options make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. He spends us some time in this chapter talking about the fairness issue, which is in Romans 9 is the exact same issue that Paul brings up. When Paul's explaining election in Romans chapter 9, um, in fact, turn there. Why don't you turn to Romans 9? If you have your Bible. Um, Romans chapter 9. This is, this is probably the clearest explanation of election in the Bible. 
I'm convinced that if you read Romans 9 and take it for what it says, there's no getting around it. It, it just, it's not easy to swallow, but you know what you're chewing on. I mean, it's clear what it's saying. And so he's explaining the doctrine of election, and he comes to verse 14 and says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, this is the objection. Paul's just said God chose Jacob, not Esau, before they were born, or either one had done anything good or bad. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And then the question is, well, doesn't that make God unrighteous? How is it fair for God to do that? That's not right. Well, that's the same question that Sproul's raising here. It's one of the objections that's raised is, isn't that unjust of God if he looks in this mass of fallen humanity and says, I'm going to do the work of claiming out some of these people and making them my own? Doesn't that make God unfair? And what's the answer? How would you respond to that? Certainly not. Well, that's what Paul says. <laughs> Certainly not. But how is that? How is that not unfair? Because if we understand who we are apart from Christ, there's no way that we would ever come to the Lord without Him doing the work. Yeah. We just wouldn't if we understand how sinful we are. It takes Him changing our heart to be able to even see Him for who He is. To, to, to claim uh, unfairness there, you have to have the idea that somehow God owes everyone mercy, that mercy is somehow obligated. Mm. Because then if God is withholding grace that saves someone, then that's unfair. But God, look back at Romans 9. Let's see how Paul answers it. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. This is from Exodus. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, just to back up, what's, what's going on here? This is when the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've sinned against God right after they get out. And, and Moses is afraid God's done with them. And so he goes to God and he prays and God says, I'm not going to abandon you. And then Moses' fear is that God's going to let them go, but God's personally not going to be with them. And so he prays again and God says, I'll go with you. And then Moses goes, how? Because God's done all this for him. They've sinned against God. God's just said, I'm going to go with you. And Moses is going, as hard-hearted and as stiff-necked as we are, how is it that you're going to still go with us? What kind of God could stay with us after what we have done? And so Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. And what God does is God, this, this is a quote from God that's quoted here in Romans 9. God makes this declaration to Moses. Moses is trying to understand who God is. How can God continue to be with people who are so stiff-necked and hard-hearted? And God's response is, Moses asks, who are you? And God says, basically, here's who I am. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In other words, here is the essence of God's glory. God is free to give mercy however, whenever, and to whomever he chooses to give mercy. That's what it means to be God. So it's not... The, the charge in Romans 9 is, isn't that unrighteous of God to, to reach out and rescue Jacob and not Esau? And Paul's response is, no, and not only is that not unrighteous, that's the right thing because that's what it means to be God. The essence of God's nature is God is perfectly sovereign in the distribution of his grace however and whenever he sees fit. Okay, so Paul's, and that's another way that you know that what we're, what, our understanding of Romans 9 is right, that we're reading Romans 9 as an explanation of unconditional election 
because Paul, as this anonymous objector, starts raising the exact same questions we ask when we start thinking about unconditional election. And so the first one is, but isn't that unfair? And so back to the book, Sproul's one. Did you have something to say, Brother Mike? No, no. I was just thinking about the potter and the wheel, too. Like, oh, um, yeah. The potter has the right to make whatever, out of clay whatever he wants. Yeah. And the clay can't say to the, the vessel that's made, can't say to the potter, well, you didn't treat me right. Right. Because he, he's in control. He is God. He's, you know, he's sovereign. Well, we, we talk about God's mercy, which, of course, there is. But then we forget about the justice part mm. and, uh, and the fact that... <coughs> flip side of a, of a coin and, and when um, when God does show mercy he also shows justice and uh, we, we kind of forget about that yeah mm-hmm. that quote in Romans 9 Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated you quote that verse and what's the part of that verse that draws everybody's ire hated hate. hate. how could God hate Esau but you see the problem with that right what should really grab our attention is why in the world? It makes sense why God would hate Esau. It makes sense why God would hate me. Yeah. What doesn't make sense is why in the world? What is Jacob in the Bible? He's a scoundrel. A scoundrel, as are we. Yeah. So it, it, shows, it shows what a twisted view we have of humanity and our nature, that we read Jacob, I have I loved, and Esau, I have I hated, and we can't believe the second part. Yeah. What we should not be able to believe is the first part. Right? That's, that's the essence of why we have so many problems with the doctrine of election is because we have such a, a minimalistic view of the depravity of man. Yeah. And that's, that's what we'll get into here in just a couple of chapters. You know, that's what I was thinking. It's, it's not until we can see who we are in the eyes of a sovereign God. I mean, you know, it is total depravity, like you said. I mean, we are, we have nothing to offer but filthy rags. Mm. I mean, we're right <coughs> to the bone. I mean, I think it's until we realize who we are, do we see how high and lifted up God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so uh, we can, well, let's go on and move to chapter 3. Chapter 3 gets into what Ms. Wanda raised just a second ago, the question of free will. So, do we have free will? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But that's not the biggest question. The biggest question is, what is free will? So what does it mean that we have free will? Anybody want to try to explain it without looking at your book? What is free will? Go for it, Brother Jude. No, it's, it's, it's the explanation he gives in the Bible, I mean in the Bible, in the book, is very simple. To make our own choices. Yes. And he, but he says without But not, that's not... Full, that's not the full definition. No, full. He, he says without any prior inclinations or prejudices, one way or another. No. To be totally neutral. That would be. That's not. That would be what he describes as autonomy. That's not biblical free will. Right. Free he will. Used, he used that example again about us not having free will. That we we all have prejudices of one one or another. Right. Help us make our choices. Free will is the ability to do what you desire. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have free will? Yes. Yes. We all have the ability to do what we desire. In fact, not only do we all have the ability to do what we desire, that's all we ever do. (laughs) We all constantly, every choice we make, we make based on what we desire. That's what free will is. So do we have free will? Do we have the ability to do what we desire? 
Yes, always, 100%, absolutely. We always make choices based on our desires. Okay, but that, that gets down to a deeper issue. So if we all make choices, if we all have the free will to do, act, decide based on our desires, then what's the deeper question? What do we desire? What do we desire? And what the Bible's going to say is that naturally, none of us desires God. Right. So do, free will, meaning we have the ability to do what we desire, yes, we all have. But that's not really the problem. The problem is our desires have, are, are all by nature so twisted, mm -hmm. we don't naturally desire God on our own. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What any what questions do you have on this free will chapter? I don't know if anybody saw it. I, in my, I have all my pop ups on my, on my iPhone, and it was probably only about two or three weeks ago. Was, was doing the process of reading this, and this this guy had done all these years of research about free will, and he came to the conclusion after all this that no one has any free will and it, I thought of course it didn't go on into detail but it was just sort of a summary and I, I don't even know what his definition of free will was but, right. but obviously not a, a biblical uh, a definition of it but I thought it was just kind of interesting that what you said is right again is it's all about how you define the term because if someone were to define free will as we're all blank slates mm -hmm. and we're completely neutral in every decision no predispositions one way or another, well, well, then no, we don't have that kind of free will because we all have predispositions and we all have desires. But do we all have the ability and freedom to do what we desire? Yes. Yes. There, there, he explains it well. Look at page 43. The very bottom of page 43. So the last paragraph, he's, he's talking about um, Jonathan Edwards' explanation of it. So the last paragraph on page 43, toward the, toward the bottom of that paragraph, it starts this way. It says, Edwards and all who embrace the Reformed view of predestination agree that if God does not plant that desire, this is a desire for God, in the human heart, then nobody left to themselves will ever freely choose Christ. Next page. They will always and everywhere reject the gospel precisely because they do not desire the gospel. They'll always and everywhere reject Christ because they do not desire Christ. They will freely reject Christ in the sense that they will act according to their own desires. Okay, so there's free will, but left to ourselves in our free will, the Bible's going to say that we will not choose Christ because we don't naturally desire Christ. Is that... Is everybody following me? Okay. So that's that's how free will fits. Yeah, we have the freedom to choose, but our desires are twisted. So we always make the wrong choice. And then he gets into so this this gets down into why are why are our desires twisted? Why do none of us desire God on our own? And where does that come from? Adam. Okay. So he he pushes from this into original sin. What is original sin? It's not, it's not, he says it's not the first sin. Right. So when we talk about the doctrine of original sin, we're not talking about the first sin. We're talking about the consequences from the first sin. 
So original sin means that because of the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, that was the nuclear explosion, and we all live with the radiation of that. And the radiation is twofold. We all bear guilt because of Adam's sin in the garden, and we all bear intrinsic corruption because of Adam's sin in the garden. So we're guilty because of his sin, and we have hearts that are twisted and fallen as a result of his sin. So, and so do you see how this is tying back into the issue of free will? So yes, we're free to do as our desire, but we've all been polluted from the fall so that we don't desire the things we ought to desire. We don't desire God. We don't desire Christ. We don't desire the gospel. We desire everything but that. Okay, so that's, so original sin plays into how we understand free will. Would you repeat that about uh, the result of, of original sin? sin of the guilt and what was the second part? Um, we, we inherit both guilt and intrinsic corruption from it. So we're judged guilty for Adam's sin and we inherit we're born with twisted hearts because of Adam's sin. Both of those. So you get that in Romans 5 if you read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. He's talking about uh, what we get in Adam and what we get in Christ and he explained <clears throat> because of one man we're all condemned, meaning we're all judged guilty. And because of one man, we're all now sinners. He says both of those things in, in the last half of Romans 5. And that intrinsic sin be the same thing as our sin nature. Is that right? Right, that's right. Yeah, that's what I meant by it. Yeah. Um, so he gives a couple verses just to, sh to remind us of the effects of Adam's sin that we don't naturally desire God. Uh, we would think, I think it's here and later, he points to Romans 3, that there's now no one who seeks after God. Um, he points us to John chapter 6. In fact, you're in Romans 9 already. Turn over to John 6. Um, look back up at verse... 44, John 6, 44, where he says, John no, John, John, 6, 6, John 6, John 6, yeah. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. So when he says no one can come unless they're drawn, what does he mean that no one can come? No one's able not may, but able. No okay, able. so can is a word of ability, but in what way is are we not able to come? Our desires don't want him. Yeah, that's right. So we, we have the ability, I mean, all things being equal, we have the ability to go to Christ, but we, we're not able, it's like, let's say you have a, a starving lion who hadn't eaten in a week and he's on the brink of starvation and you dump a, a couple bales of hay out in front of him. Well, here's food. Here's something that will keep that lion alive. Is that lion going to eat it? Why? He wants to eat it. On one sense, he can. I mean, he has teeth that will chew and a mouth that will swallow. He can on that sense. But in the other sense, he can't because it's against his nature to eat it. Well, that's the idea of John 6 is no one can come because it's against our nature. We don't have the moral ability because we don't want God. Yeah. Okay, so that's... That's the free will issues because they're just kind of pushing down into our corrupt desires. So we, we could, but we follow our desires and our desires don't want it. 
All right, any other questions on that chapter? I guess here would be the question that I'll come back to later. So if this is true, if we only make choices based on what we desire, none of us desire God on our own, then what has to happen? For there to be salvation. There has to be, God has to do something in our hearts to quicken new desires. Right? There has to be some sort of spiritual awakening so that I have a desire that I didn't have before. And that's, that's what he'll talk about later. That's, that's what's happening at, at the new birth as God is taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh. He's awakening things, desires, hungers that I didn't have before. Okay, chapter 4. He's going to get a little bit more into our relationship to Adam. He gives a couple different theories and views on, on how we're connected to Adam's fall and how we should view the fall. So how are we connected to Adam? What did you get out of that chapter? Adam represented us. I'm thinking about the catechism question with you with the kids. Adam represented us and we fell with him in his first sin. He's, a, he's like that federal headship. Okay, so the fall is not just a, it's not just a, a mythological moral to- a story yeah. about the importance of obeying God. It's not that we in some uh, mystical sense were with Adam in the garden. It's that God established it. He uses the word federal headship. He established it so that Adam wasn't just the first man. He was the representative man. Yeah. He was established as the representative of all of humanity so that when Adam fell, he didn't just fall personally. He fell on all of our behalf. The way I say it in sermons lots of times is Adam was our representative. So when Adam declared war against God, he put all of us at war against God. If Biden declares war against Mexico tomorrow, it's not just the president who's at war. All all Americans are at war. So when Adam declared war against God through sin, he put all of humanity who he represents at war against God with him. So that's our connection to Adam. So he represented us. Any questions on our connection? He said the fall was great. Great. What page is this on? On 57, it says, As a result of Adam's sin, all men are now sinners. The fall was great. It had radical repercussions for the entire human race. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a minor stumble. Right. It was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't, and it wasn't a fall in the right direction. That's that's what Mormons say. Mormons say they fell, but they fell in the right direction. They have a very weird view of the fall, but um, it's a fall that was ruinous. It ruined Adam and Eve, and it ruined all of us because of our connection to it. All right, anything else on chapter four? All right, chapter five. Spiritual death and spiritual life. Now he's going to, he uses the TULIP acronym to start working through a couple of the points, even though he didn't go through all of them. And to me, chapter five, the things he deals with here are the linchpin to the whole doctrine of election. And he talks about it a little bit. But if you get what the Bible says about man's condition because of the fall, the only option you're left with is election. That's all you're left with. Um, and so that's what he's dealing with here. So how, what all has the fall? When he uses the term total depravity, what does that mean? What does it mean to say we're totally depraved? There's nothing good about us. Okay. 
That sums it up. We're corrupt. Okay. So, so utter corruption, that's, that's the catechism too. I'm totally corrupt in every part of my being. So total depravity, he touches on it in the chapter, does not mean that we all behave as badly as we could possibly behave. What total depravity means is that our condition is as bad as it could possibly be. So it means that, that Adam's sin has affected every part of our nature. So it, it's affected our hearts. So um, the Bible says that our hearts are deceptive in Jeremiah. It's affected our minds. Paul says in Romans 8 that, that the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. So we have hearts that are deceived. We have minds that are, are naturally hostile at enmity to God. And we just saw in John 6, no man can come. We have wills that are so twisted that we would never go to God on our own. So, so total depravity means every part of our being has been affected. Mind, heart, will, everything. No parts left untouched. That's the idea of total depravity. Um, and we could spend more time on that. But um, maybe Ephesians 2 would be a good summary of it. Ephesians 2.1, uh, you made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's a pretty good sum summary of what it means to be totally depraved. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Um, I mean, he just he kind of outlines the whole thing of what mm -hmm. spiritual death looks like there before God stepped in and made us alive. Mm -hmm. So that's total depravity. And, and so the, what we're wrestling with here, trying to think through man's condition because of the fall, this is something that Christians have had to wrestle with. Think back, go back to, you're, imagine you're living in the fourth century. Okay, so you're just kind of, we've gotten the Bible, you've got all the books accumulated, you're, and, and you're kind of, you don't have systematic theology books yet where all of these different issues have been dealt with. So you're kind of having to address different doctrinal issues as they come. And so one of the, this, the fifth century is where, 400s is where this issue of original sin really rose to the forefront. Augustine, you've heard, heard the name Augustine before. Augustine was praying and his prayer was, God, um, grant what you command and command whatever you will. In other words, God, command whatever you want us to do and then grant, give us the grace to do what you command. Okay, he prayed that. Well, there was another pastor, a man named Pelagius, who was furious by Augustine's prayer. Now, why would that prayer possibly make somebody angry? Okay, so Pelagius said, if God commands us something, we don't need God to give us grace to do it. In other words, if God commands us to do something, that means we're able to do it on our own. So if God commands us to obey, we're, we have the power to obey on our own. If God commands us to be holy, we have the power to be holy on our own. If God commands us to believe, we have the power to believe on our own. So, so Pelagius said that uh, responsibility demands ability. God commands us to do something and holds us accountable, we have the ability to do it. So in the Pelagius' understanding of man was, we're all kind of blank slates. We don't need any extra grace from God. We have the absolute autonomous freedom to do everything God's commanded us to do on our own. And then Augustine is going through the verses that we were just looking at going, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible says clearly we're desperately, desperately needing God's grace. And our hearts aren't blank slates. So Pelagius is saying, if you think of it like one of the old-timey scales, 
He was saying that the scales of our hearts are balanced between good and evil. And so it's up to us which way we go. Well, Augustine's saying that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our hearts are irredeemably tilted toward evil. That's what the direction will always go. That's what we're always going to choose. So, and I'm saying that just to make the point. So this is an issue that Christians have had to wrestle with over the years because it's so important. How you understand what man is by nature has huge ramifications on how you think about everything from salvation to the gospel to right to everything. Um, so what else, anything else stand out to you in this chapter on total depravity or questions about total depravity? I liked on page 89, um, the second paragraph, well, it goes from page 88 to 89, but the second paragraph that says, yet Paul says the man is dead. He is not merely drowning. He has already sunk to the bottom of the sea. It is futile to throw a life preserver to a man who has already drowned. If I understand Paul, I hear him saying that God dives into the water and pulls a dead man from the bottom of the sea and then performs a divine act of mouth mouth resuscitation. He breathes into the dead man new life. And that's what we have to have the Lord do for us. So we're not just drowning. We're dead. So there's three potential. You've you got to take one of three positions on man's nature. You've got to say man is healthy by nature, that man is sick, or that man is dead. Mm-hmm. So Pelagius said man's healthy. Augustine said man's dead. There was another view that came along called semi-Pelagianism that said, well, man's not dead, but he's just there's an island of righteousness in there. Most of us is corrupt, but there's still a good part in there, and you just got to appeal to the good part of man so that he can make the right choice. And Augustine is saying, we're not, we're not healthy, we're not sick, we're dead. We're completely corrupted so that we need God. God has to radically intervene and change a heart so that, that or no one will ever believe. So do you see how, how you understand man's nature is the crucial cog in where you go from there and how you understand everything else? Because if you think, well... Man's mostly bad, but there's some, some good left in there. There's that island of righteousness where the scales are balanced. It changes. Well, then, of course, well, then we can do it on our own. But if you understand that man is dead in sin, heart will never choose God, well, then that means God's going to have to intervene and do something. That's the only way it happens. All right, questions on, on this chapter? Okay. I hope I'm answering questions and not making this more complicated. Um, one more thing on this chapter. So he, he does mention that verse in Romans 3 um, about there's none who does good. How can that be? How can, how can the Bible say that nobody on our own, apart from God's grace, will ever do good? Because, I mean, here we are in Christmas season. There are, there are lots of unbelievers out there who are collecting toys to give to kids for Christmas. Isn't that good? So how can Paul say in Romans 3 that by nature we can't do good? Because you're good. So the Lord looks at our heart, right? So we do good things, but what are they motivated for? What's the motivation behind it? Um, And we would say that, I mean, even believers sometimes have motivations, right, that are so goodness pure. isn't just measured by behavior, it's measured right. by the, the motivation. Heart. And our heart motivations are never um, 100% flawless. But you can even go another step because the Bible is going to say two, in two places that anything apart from faith is sin. So anything that's done that's not done from a heart that's trusting in God, anything that's done that's not done from a heart that's looking to God, is not pleasing to God. 
So good measured by other people, well, sure, we do lots of things that might be good in that regard, but the ultimate measure of good is God. And so measured against God's goodness, God's goodness requires not just the right behaviors, but the right motives. And God's goodness requires that our ultimate motive be faith and God's glory. Nothing we do is ever good because nothing we do comes close to meeting that standard. Because that's Romans 3. There is none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. What about the second part of that? How can he say there's none who seeks after God? Again, he's describing us our natural condition and our sin. And he's saying no one naturally seeks after God. But don't we see people who seem to be seeking after God? We talk about seekers. They seem to be a seeker. So how do you explain that? Do you remember what he says? I think it's a later chapter. Um, we're seeking things um, that we desire of God. Like yeah. um, the privileges that we would get from God. So yeah, that's right. That's exactly how he describes it. Yeah, that, that what, we're just, what, we, what we're really seeking are the benefits that God gives, not God himself. So we might seek some of the, you know, the side benefits of, of having God, but nobody naturally wants God. We just want the good stuff that God as the candy dispenser might send our way, but nobody else wants God himself. And you see that even with people, too, who, like you think, sometimes are on the verge maybe of coming to know the Lord. You're praying for them. You think, well, maybe the Lord's you know, working in their heart, but it never quite, because they're not really seeking God. God hasn't, you know, they're just seeking to not ruin their life. They're seeking his benefits, not really. That, I know, I really remember that, because it, it really made me think of how I think about people. And, you know, you meet somebody, and you're like, gosh, like, if they, you know, like, I know that they want something, maybe, like, right. But, and you talk to them, I don't know, that's exactly what you just said. It's like, you know that what they want is the benefit of God. Right. Maybe mm -hmm. if you could just open their eyes to that they actually and, need him. And he can and does sometimes. He does. Like God right. works right. through right. that right. sometimes to open their eyes to what I really need is him. Right. Right. Yeah. But, I don't know, I can't explain it, but it even makes me think about how I think about them. Like, yeah, and the, sure. you know, like, yeah. wow, wow, I was missing it, but mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Okay, so again, this gets back to, so if that's our condition, what we desperately have to have is God to uh, Ephesians 2 again. He describes that whole description, dead in trespasses and sins, but God, verse 4, 5, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. That's what we need. We need God to make us alive by his grace. And so he spends the, I think it's the same chapter, the last part of it, talking about grace, he gets into the the eye of tulip, and talks about what is. So, what is irresistible grace? Well, what it's not. That doesn't mean that God drags people into the kingdom, <laughs> kicking and screaming. That doesn't mean that people can't resist God's grace. I mean, the whole story of Israel is constantly kicking against God's ongoing kindness and grace toward them. Um, but what it does mean is God's um, effectual grace. For God's elect, that his grace will prevail. That God's grace to regenerate a heart will prevail. That it will break through. God will open eyes so that they see. So God doesn't make anyone believe. What happens at regeneration is God opens eyes so that we see that it's not just the benefits. I need him. So I see Christ as the attractive thing for the first time. And I want Christ. So I embrace Christ and, and believe. 
So that's he says irresistible grace is it the best word? And I think I think he's right. He talks about effectual grace or I don't remember changed what word it to what, what yeah. like relevant by the end or like he was talking about ruler for something. Rula, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But. so so the connection is those he, he skips unconditional election right here, but the connection is totally depraved, which means that God has to do a work. So before the foundation of the world, God chose the people who he is going to intervene in to make his own. And in time, God's grace then acts, takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, takes the blinders off of eyes, unclogs spiritually dead ears, awakens appetites so that they believe in Christ. So that's where the grace fits into the, the picture. All right, questions on that one? Nobody? We were, we were talking the other day about that and talking about maybe that the, that the blinders are still on as far as his chosen people. And they will come off during the maybe the tribulation period or sometime right You're talking about Israel? I'm talking about Israel. Okay. The blinders that they have on, mm-hmm. but and we see in this week's focal passages that it says that Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures. Uh, well, that's sure what I'd like for him to do right now with me, to you know, to help <laughs> to, to yeah. understand this. Yeah. Uh, Again, I don't, I, honestly, there's lots of it that it's hard to answer some of the side questions. The nuts and bolts of it, I don't think are that hard to understand. I think it's hard to swallow. I don't think it's, I, I think some of like the Romans 9, I don't think it's hard to understand. I think it's hard to swallow, though. Um, all right, any other questions on the this chapter with Irresistible Grace or what he was talking about at the beginning of it? So, I guess I should say this because he mentions prevenient grace. So, if we're dead, desires don't have desires for God, then something has to happen to the heart. And so, what Arminian theology would say is, well, what happens is what, what what's called prevenient grace, where God just at some point gives everyone a sort of leading grace that I guess the way to describe it would be that kind of rebalances the scales. So, our hearts are dead. Then God. Sins, I get either they have there's different views on how it happens, but maybe when they hear the gospel, their hearts are rebalanced, and so they know the scales are equal again, so that they have desires and they can choose Christ. And then if they don't believe, well, then prevenient grace is gone and they go back toward sin. That's what prevenient grace is. It, what, what prevenient grace, first of all, there's no constant, there's no verse that teaches that in the Bible. But what prevenient grace does is it teaches like a sort of halfway spiritual awakening, like you can be dead in sin but then like temporarily awakened to choose and then back to being dead in sin. And there's just nothing in the Bible that would teach that there would be a kind of temporary awakening and then like you're temporarily resuscitated. Um, but that's what pre- basically prevenient grace is. I liked the middle of 95 when it says, if you're a Christian, you're aware that there aren't, that of course that there are people who are not Christians. Why is it that you have chosen Christ and they have not? Um, why did you say yes to prevenient grace while they said no? Was it because you were more righteous than they were? Mm-hmm. And so, indeed, you have something in which to boast. 
was that greater righteousness something you achieved on your own or was it because anyway it just goes on it's just all of those questions are great. I mean you have to mm -hmm. think through that because you got to drill down to the bottom line issue because why do we believe and not why do you believe and not your neighbor why do you believe and not your friend you've got to get down to the bottom line and if the bottom answer for you is because of something in you right. something's off yeah because if, if you deny this, that's what you have to say. Well, the bottom line answer is my heart was more sensitive. The bottom line issue is I just had different desires. The bottom line issue is I was just more spiritually soft to God. Or, but you, it comes down to something better in you. Um, but this is saying the bottom line issue is God's grace. It's God's grace. All right, it's already been an hour on this. Chapter 6. Somebody want to explain how foreknowledge and predestination fit together? <laughs> because this is one of the common um, answers that's given on, on election is that election is based on foreknowledge with a definition that foreknowledge, some would say, means that God looked down through time and God knows in advance who's going to choose him. And so based on God's knowledge of who's going to choose him, God then, before that, chooses them. So they would say election is based on foreknowledge. So God's not, not choosing who's going to be saved. God just sees who's going to believe by their own free will, and then God elects them. Um, what's, anybody pick up the problem with that view? Well, we can't choose God. <laughs> I mean, you know. Okay. Right. Okay. So one of the problems with that view is it reads a definition into foreknowledge that's not in the verse. So it's reading foreknowledge as the, the verse says, those whom he foreknew. God foreknew a people. Well, that reads foreknowledge as decisions that God foreknew. So the word know, gnosko in the Bible, when it's talking about knowing people. It is always a relationship word. Always. It's not a fact word. It's not an information word. For instance, the Bible is going to say, Adam knew his wife Eve. What does that mean? Does that mean Adam had information about Eve? It means Adam had a relationship with Eve. When Jesus in Matthew 7 is talking about the final judgment scene, and Jesus says that there will be those who he says, depart from me, I never what does it mean that he never knew them? Does that mean he didn't know the decisions they would make? No, it means he didn't know them relationally. So to know in the Bible is synonymous. When it's talking about knowing people or people knowing God, it is synonymous with love. To know is to love. It's a relationship word. So foreknowledge is it's equivalent to foreloved, that there's a people who God placed his love on. And then those people he placed his love on, those whom he foreknew, this is Romans 8, he predestined. So those he placed his love on, he then destined them for what he was going to do for them, what their destiny was going to be. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So, so to read it the other way is to, take, is to read a brand new meaning into foreknowledge from what you get anywhere else in the Bible. And this Sproul makes the point that what that passage was called the golden chain of salvation, that it's the same group throughout. It, it, we've been turning to other passages. Let's turn to this one if you want to. Look at Romans 8, just so you can see this. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And one of the points Sproul makes is, it's the same group through all of that. So it's all, all of those that God justified. I should, say it, I should say it this way. It's all of those and only those God justifies that will be glorified. Mm -hmm. That's the last step. We'll take it back another step. It's all those and only those God calls who are justified. Mm -hmm. Take it back another step. It's all those and only those God predestines who he calls. Take it back another step. It's all those and only those he foreknows who he predestines. So all those and only those he foreknew are the ones he calls in this way, and they're the ones who are justified and glorified. It's the same group. It's, that's why it's called the golden chain of salvation. It's like these chain links are locked together. Well, it starts at the beginning, and once it's at the beginning, it is unbreakable until the end of it. It's one and the same. Um, so um, that's the relationship foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is God's foreloving. He's knowing these people in a relational way that he's placed his relational love on before the beginning of the world who he then uh, predestines and calls and justifies and, and glorifies. So that's the relationship. Questions about foreknowledge. No, it makes me think, you know, just like that. I love that verse. I love that. And um, really, how do people not believe in election with verses like this? How do you explain it? If, if someone says, well, I just don't agree with that, or I don't interpret the Bible that way, how do they interpret that, the predestination, that is? Well, I, be, I've got a friend that did that said that one time. This right. was a long time ago. So that's just not the way I interpret it. The Bible, the way I interpret it. But my thought on that, I don't even know what I said at that time, but my thought is, well, that there's I in there. It's not how I interpret it. This is what God says that those who be predestined, so I, I just don't understand, but those who don't believe in predestination, how do they interpret that passage? Well, I think the, the way that I was saying at the start is this is a passage that folks who don't believe in the doctrine of election like to use. They'll like to use it because if you don't really follow through what he says in the whole verse, you can just say, well, look, this foreknowledge. So predestination is based on foreknowledge, and then I define foreknowledge this way. Foreknowledge means God saw in advance who was going to believe. And so it's, it's a, a simplistic understanding of Romans 8 without actually tracing the whole verse through and, without, and missing the point that he says that, and then he goes on in the very next chapter, Romans 9, to explain it further. And Romans 9 doesn't give any leeway for that room of that sort of view of what how they're defining foreknowledge. Yeah. And it's in John, it's in Ephesians, like mm -hmm. you, I mean, it's just, it's not like it's just in Romans, it's everywhere right. throughout scripture. I mean, like It's you said, everywhere in John. It's Right, all, oh, we just finished John in our Bible reading, it's all I, I, through John. Yeah. So that's one of the things, like, um, if you've been here through the studies in, in scripture, you've heard this stuff a billion times <laughs> as you've been in our church. Like when Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John 3, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. That God has to do this initiatory work in your heart so that you can even see the kingdom. And then he describes the new birth as the wind blowing. 
that you can't control it. All you do is see the results of it. That's what the new birth is like. Well, what does that sound like to you? Does that sound like man's autonomous free will being the deciding factor in the new birth? Or does that sound like a sovereign God who's... Yeah. John 6 is the same thing. No one comes unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day, right? John 10, uh, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I'll raise... You know, I mean, it's, it's John 17 where Jesus is praying and saying, those who you've given to me. I, who are these people who were given to Jesus, who he says that he's going to raise up on the last day? Well, it's, it's those who were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world, who he says in John 10 that he came to give his life for, who he's going to raise up. You just... You have to close your eyes to to not to avoid that. Like it's like once once you are once you see that it's there, you everywhere. see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. Old you realize that right. Oh. You, you realize that you might have been. So all of our challenges, we can come into the Bible with our own sort of pre-developed traditions. That's a kind of filter that we read the Bible through that helps us just completely ignore things that are there or miss things that are there because it doesn't fit into the framework that we've developed over however many years of how we read the Bible. But when you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like it's, it's all over the place. Right. And, and I keep thinking about when you were preaching through John about someone who was here and when they were leaving, they said, Brother, I, I just don't preach those passages. And, and that's what has happened throughout a lot of churches. They're not taught. And if they are, they're not taught correctly. Yeah, that was because, a certain, because it offends people. No, it, so that they was that they're not in control. Yeah, no, that's of right. Their salvation. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that was, it was a sermon on John six about those passages. Those the Father given me, I will raise up. And it was that he said the guy left and said, I just always preach whosoever will. And I said, Well, when I'm on a text that says whosoever will, that's what I preach too. <laughs> but I don't get to let whosoever will make me ignore John six. Right? That's, that's the problem. Um, okay. Next chapter. Chapter 7. Maybe I should ask this first before we get into chapter 7. Because there's a, a real pastoral question here. So one of the reasons that we struggle with this is because we think, well, I have a friend who's not a believer. What does this mean for that friend I have who's not a believer? I have a mom who's not a believer. What does this mean for that mom? Maybe they're not elect. Maybe they're just not going to believe. So what about that? Because that's, that's really where a lot of the struggle comes. And I think for me, what, where it leaves me is two places. One, it leaves me saying, I, here's what I know about God. I know God is good. I know that he, what he does is always right. And so whatever that looks like, I have to trust that God is good. That's one thing it tells me. The other thing it tells me is it doesn't matter where this family member of mine is. I know God has the power at any moment if he chooses to bring them to life. Mm -hmm. So it, it keeps me from becoming, I, it keeps me from ever losing hope with friends and family. Because this means all that has to happen is a sovereign God has to say, come out of the tomb, Lazarus, yeah. and they're going to come out of the tomb. Mm -hmm. So it, it leaves me saying, I'm trusting God on the one hand, and it leaves me saying, there's hope on the other hand, because God can at any time do this. No one's too far gone, um, because it's not, because I could look at a family member and say, if it's ba based on his will, I think his will's done. I think he's, he's chosen what he's going to choose. But God's sovereign, right? So it, it, 
I don't think for me the doctrine of election doesn't leave me in despair. It gives me hope that I know God's good and He's in control, and I've, I've trusted Him with everything. I'm going to trust Him with this too, and it leaves me saying God's powerful and God can God's grace can overcome anything, and He can open anybody's eyes, and I can trust that with God. Um, so I, I, we're talking about all this in, in intellectual, theoretical, theological tones, but there's a real pastoral, personal issue here too, right? So I don't want to ignore that. Okay. Well, I don't think anywhere does it say that, uh, that there's a time limit. Right. To, I mean, well, if uh, Joe doesn't uh, accept God by, or Jesus by December 1st, then there's no need to, no need to even visit Joe anymore. Right. Because he's, you know, he's past his time. Right. And I don't, I don't think we see that. That's right. You know, if you're if you're working with some, with someone, I mean, there's no point to give up. Right. Mm -hmm. With that person. Yeah, that's right. Well, we don't know God's timeline. That's what. Yeah. And right. He is sovereign. Amen. And and we don't know who He's picked and chosen and predestined. That's not for us to and know. And he intentionally didn't tell us that. Right. Right. Absolutely. It's not for me to know. And it's not, I don't need to trouble myself trying to figure that out. Right. My responsibility is to share the gospel, to make disciples, to love the Lord, to persevere in the faith. And then I know this is true about God, and I find, mm -hmm. I find rest in the sovereignty of God, but it's not for me to know the details. And he's the one that saves. Amen. And it's our job to ask God to draw those people right. to him. Because yeah. God didn't say, you prayed that yesterday, that's enough. Amen. Amen. No more. No. Pray it every Knock. day. Yeah. Every yeah. day. You yeah. know, when we pray for someone's salvation, I don't think anyone ever prays an Arminius-type prayer about <laughs> saving someone. You know, yeah. God, if they're smart enough, bring them to faith. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. change their heart. Right. Bring them to faith. That's bring them to life. Open their yeah. eyes. Put yeah. somebody in their path. Yeah. yeah. To, it's kind of yeah. like the jumping ahead a little bit. I think it's actually in the very last chapter, but it's uh, the question about so so why worry about evangelism? And mm -hmm. so I yeah. think you, yeah, we, we just said is that yeah, we don't know. Command God commands it. Is what Sproul says. And the, 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 another answer is because it's amazing that the Lord would bring us into this work. He's actually using us. The grand plan that he started from the beginning of the world that he's going to finish when his people are with him, he actually incorporates us into it yeah. and lets us do something with our lives that matters in this grand scheme of things. That's unbelievable. Well, he doesn't need us to do that, but he, he does it with us. And I love the way he brings in so much there that it's a privilege of yes. ours to evangelize. And, um, and it is, and we really need to think. I know when we were in training, that was a huge thing with evangelizing is that it's a privilege. It's our privilege to be able yeah. to do that. So. Yeah. Okay, next chapter. All right, we'll try to be done by 7.30. If y'all need to leave before that, you can. <laughs> so chapter 7 is on double-double uh, toll and trouble. He's talking about the other side of election is reprobation and what that means. So God elects some to salvation and passes over others. And so he talks about he uses the phrase equal ultimacy. Do y'all remember that phrase? Mm -hmm. That it's not equal ultimacy between the elect and the non-elect. Do y'all remember what he means by that? <coughs> on page 110, equal ultimacy is based on the concept of symmetry. 
Yeah. It seeks a complete balance between election and reformation. So what equal ultimacy is saying is that you have the elect and the non-elect. God has to actively work in the hearts of the elect so that they believe. So equal ultimacy says, well, that means God also must in the same way work in the hearts of the non-elect so they don't believe. But that's not what the doctrine of election teaches. You don't get that anywhere in the Bible. God has to work in the hearts of his people so that they believe. That's not, but God doesn't do that in the hearts of non-elect so they don't believe. They already don't believe. They already don't believe. Right. So, and that's what he talks about here. He talks about the hardening of Pharaoh. and All, all that God does is he just restrains. I mean, he just stops restraining. He just lets them run their course, do what they want to do. So it, that's what he's saying here is that, yes, the other side of election is reprobation. There are those who God chooses who he has to do a work in so that they believe and get eternity with God. And then there are others who don't believe. But God doesn't work. It's not the same sort of activity in both groups. He has to do an active work so that we believe. But with the other group, he just lets them do what they want to do. He lets them run their course and have what they want and follow their desires. So it's not the same sort of involvement. That's the main point he's making. So when he talks about like hardening a heart, it's just him taking his hands off to just let them... So, like you said, I mean, we're not as bad as we could be. There's right. some grace that's given there, so we're not. So the mm -hmm. Lord just lifts that. So we do become hard, as hard as we would want to be. So is that kind yeah, of... Yeah, I like the way you described it in there. He said something along the lines of, God's hardening is God's just given us more leash. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. given us more rope that we end up hanging ourselves with. So mm -hmm. it's not doing anything. So right now, the only reason... So there's millions and billions of people who don't know Christ don't have God's spirit in their hearts. The only reason they're not worse is because God graciously restrains their conscience and a million other things. And God's hardening is he just withdraws some of that restraining grace, gives more rope. That's what we think of Pharaoh as God's unpouring, I mean, pouring out crazy miracles and plagues. And yet Pharaoh still won't believe and let the children of Israel go. And you look at that and think, how in the world? What kind of goober would not look at this and think, yeah. I'm letting them go. They're not real. <laughs> but at every stage, God hardens Pharaoh, which means God is just, what the normal restraints of conscience that would say, you better change your buddy. What you're doing is wrong. God just withdraws that so that Pharaoh just locks in more and more in his rebellion as God withdraws that restraint. And that's, I think, the best picture of hardening. Yeah. All right, chapter 7. Anything else? And he quotes it in um, Romans 9. We didn't read it earlier, but where it says, yeah, we did read it, that he shows mercy to whom he will and he hardens whom he wills. Mm -hmm. That it's not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy, right? And he's saying that in terms of salvation. It's not of him who wills. It's not of him who runs. It's of God who shows mercy. That it's not our willing. It's not our efforts. It's God. Yeah, I mean, so everywhere in the Bible, it's like it's saying, if you drill down to the bottom layer of all of this, it's grace. That's it. You just can't get away from it. That's the bedrock. You can't get any lower than that. That's the bottom layer. Um, so it's grace on the one hand, and it's, Withholding grace on the other, letting letting them, us, do whatever we want to do and have our own way. All right, any questions on chapter 7?
does talk about a little bit, I think at the end of this chapter, the you in TULIP, unconditional election. So it's clear that election is in the Bible, that God is the people he chose before the foundation of the world. And so the unconditional election is saying, so God chose the people, what was his choice based on? And you have three choices. God's choice was either based on some good work in me, his choice was based on foreseen faith in me, or his choice was based on his own good pleasure. And Ephesians 1 says it was based on his own good pleasure. That he didn't look down and see something good in me, whether it's faith or works, that, that he did this based on, he has a plan. I don't know what that is. I don't know why it pleased God to do it this way. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. But he's doing it this way because he has a good purpose in it that's ultimately going to result in his supreme glory. That's how he's doing it. So that's the you. All right, chapter 9. Or eight. He gets into uh, the P of tulip. So the question here is, um, can we know that we're saved? Or maybe I should even say, is that something that we should expect? Is assurance something that we can expect to have as Christians or should pursue as Christians? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Some yes. Some whispers yes. and head nods. Okay, so the Bible is going to say, you know, Paul, uh, John writes in 1 John, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And Paul says, he quotes that, um, I think it was first, 2 Corinthians verse, that he, we're told to make our calling and election sure that, that there's a certainty that we should pursue in our election. Have I been called of God? Am I part of the elect? How do I know that? There's a way that I can get assurance in that. So where does assurance come from? God, okay. Based on what he's done. I think that that's one of the things that's such a gift from the Lord, understanding election, is it helps strengthen my assurance because I'm not the one who initiated it. And in John, it tells us, those that you've given to me, I will not lose. It's just, if I could lose it, I would, but it's based on Christ's grip on me. And it just gives... Um, such strength to my assurance because it's not I'm just not worried about my end of the thing you know he, he talks about it a little differently in the book but there, there's two grounds of assurance there's what's called the objective grounds and subjective grounds objective grounds are basically so what does God promise to those who savingly believe there's all sorts of promises the Bible makes to those who savingly believe so I hold on to these promises. I know God's faithful. He's going to keep every one of these promises that he's made to those who believe that there's nothing, not height nor depth, nor mm -hmm. any created thing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord, that nothing can pluck me out of his hand, right? Those are promises God makes to those who save me believe. That's objective grounds of assurance. The subjective side then says, okay, but how do I know if I savingly believe? Mm -hmm. And um, he gets on a couple of those here. So there's, there's the internal evidence so is there a desire? Because that's one of the things we're talking about. There has to be this new birth. I didn't have a desire before. Are there, are there spiritual appetites that are there? That's part of the subjective grounds. Now, this is subjective because spiritual appetites right, ebb and flow. And sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not great. But is there a pattern of there being a spiritual appetite in my life? Um, he also talks about the internal evidence of the Holy Spirit's assurance that, that the Holy Spirit te testifies in our hearts 
the Bible says that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit testifies so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Mm -hmm. So there's something in our hearts that says, God is Father, and I want to cry out to God as Father. And then the external evidence would be, is there evidence of pursuing obedience? Because 1 John's also going to say that the mark that I'm, I'm not in darkness, that I'm in light, is I obey his commandments. So is there, is there evidence externally of spiritual fruit that I'm wanting to follow the Lord? There's, I'm really wanting to live, submit, live submitted to him. I'm seeking obedience. Now, again, it's subjective. There are times when I feel like I'm obeying better than others, and there are times when I, I, I'm not obeying well at all. Um, so we're not looking at the moment uh, as to find assurance. We're looking at the, we're not looking at the picture, we're looking at the video, right? We're not looking at the moment, we're looking at over the time. Is there evidence of me, I want to know the Lord. Is there evidence over time of appetite? Is there evidence over time of me pursuing obedience? Is there evidence over time of a heart that wants to worship the Lord? And so that's, that's how I know if I savingly believe. And then I hold on to all these promises God makes to those who savingly believe. And together, those things sort of form our assurance. Um, so that's the P in TULA. It's perseverance of the saints. He words it preservation of the saints. And the idea is that those who God started this work in, he's going to finish it. He preserves our faith. And the sign that he preserves our faith is we persevere in the faith. We, we hold to the faith. We don't abandon. We, we don't walk away. Right? He uses the example of, I mean, what's the difference in Judas and Peter? Both of them had horrible falls. So if you looked in the moment, you would think maybe, maybe neither one of these guys is a real believer. But the evidence is that there's conviction in Peter's life. And Peter comes back to the Lord because Jesus said, I'll pray for you. Mm -hmm. And when you return, right, that he's, he's the mediator who's interceding mm -hmm. for Peter. And that's guaranteeing that Peter's not going to collapse forever, that he's going to come back. So, um, I love the way he said I, mean, I, I don't think I've ever pulled that out of how... How Jesus said, not if you return, but when you return. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the P. And so uh, all of this is connected. This is so historically, um, belief in the doctrine of unconditional election was directly tied to the belief in perseverance of the saints, eternal security. Whereas belief in the Arminian position historically was tied to a belief that you could lose your salvation. And that makes sense, right? Because if you're going to say, well, the primary factor is, it's not God's grace. The primary factor is my choice. Well, if it's my choice that's the deciding factor in me becoming a Christian, then it would make sense that my choice could lead to me not being a Christian so that there wouldn't be assurance. But if God, before the foundation of the world, chose a people that he gave to his son and the son then dies for those people, and it's secured from beginning to end, yeah. right? And so eternal security is tied to, in, in most statements of faith, including the Baptist faith, the message. The, the article that talks about election is the same article that talks about eternal security because it's going from beginning to end. These two things are related in how you understand salvation. So that's chapter 8. All right, I think I'm losing everybody. So any questions? How, anything in the question and answer part that, that you weren't sure about? I, I love what he said when he, was, he talked about... Uh, <clears throat> In one of the seminary classes that his, um, his uh, professor uh, asked if God has finally decreed election and reprobation from all eternity, why should we be concerned about evangelism, which we talked about here before. They, he went all the way around the classroom and, and, and Mr. Sproul said, uh, yeah, he finally, all, all the other students before him said, I don't, I don't know. Right. You know. They were 
just saying, you know, they, they didn't even attempt to answer. But then his answer was, I know this isn't the answer you're looking for, but one small reason we should be concerned about evangelism is that, well, uh, you know, after all, Christ does command us. <laughs> <laughs> and then his professor comes back and said, small? Yeah. <laughs> and let me say one more thing about that. Um, it's interesting in the Bible that, that the Apostle Paul especially actually points to the doctrine of, of election not as something that disincentivizes evangelism, but as something that incentivizes evangelism. So that Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy when he's talking about the importance of being faithful in the church and being faithful with the gospel, one of the things Paul anchors that in is he says, I do all things for the sake of God's elect. In other words, the reason I'm enduring so that I keep sharing the gospel is because I know God has a people out there. And then in Acts, when Paul is in Corinth and um, things are hard, he's not getting a whole lot of fruit, he's thinking about leaving the city because it's so difficult, and Jesus appears to Paul overnight and says, stay because I have many people in that city. In other words, Christ was assuring Paul, he hadn't had much fruit yet, but he was assuring Paul that there were many people in that city who belonged to Christ, those who were given to him by the Father. And Paul needed to stay and preach because those people, when they heard, were going to believe. So lots of times election is thrown out like, that'll keep you from evangelizing. But that's not what you see in the Bible. It's actually, it gives us the incentive that there's going to be fruit. I don't know when it'll come. I don't know what it's going to look like. God has a people, and he's going to save those people. So I'm just going to keep sharing the gospel and trust that God has a people, right? That it, it compels us that there will be fruit, so. Any other questions? Anything else in the question and answer part? We went longer than we had planned. Nobody? All right. Well, thank you all for hanging in there. All right, we'll pray. Brother Mike, will you close us in prayer and we'll dismiss? Sure. Lord, we thank you, God, for, for your sovereign grace, God. We thank you, God, for the opportunity.